Good morning, everyone. Pleasure to see you all. What a blessing to be able to worship the Lord together. Um, after the service, they are at the end of the service. We're going to have a time of communion. So if you're a believer and a follower of Jesus, you're invited and encouraged to join in. We'll just receive that at the end of our time. Um, do have one announcement. We have purchased some glass tumblers to go away from uh, disposable plastic. Um, they were harder to find and just better for the environment. So one one thing that we would ask is that, or I would ask, is that you could please put them in the glass washer or in the sink so that we make sure that, you know, some person doesn't think, oh, it's clean enough and just leave it there. Just want to do our, our part to keep people healthy and the glass washer kills everything. So that's very good. It gets really hot and sanitary. So let's keep things sanitary. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for this morning, for bringing us together and just for your awesomeness, that you are an awesome God, yet holy, holy and, and yet humble, that you would become a man, that you would sacrifice yourself so we could live, that you would tell us about our, our depraved condition, just our sinfulness, so that we could be saved, that you could heal us and deliver us uh, from sin, from death and hell and Thank you for the grace that you've extended to us through Christ and through the gospel and pray that as we read your word today, it would minister your truth to our hearts and we would be strong in the Lord and the power of your might. And for those who are ill, Lord, those who aren't able to make it, we pray that you would strengthen them, bring healing, uh, comfort to their hearts and that you would unite us all in your love and thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll be in Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 14, if you want to turn there. From a young age, I think we learned that actions have consequences. We learned uh, that we were doing the right thing when we were praised for it or disciplined for lying or biting. Uh, like, that's bad, don't do that. Sharing is good, and you get, you get an attaboy if you do the right thing, and if you do the wrong thing, you just get a look or uh, some other discipline. And sometimes the correlation between cause and effect was very clear. Like you had a mozzie bite, and so there's this itchy welt. Or you had a bad sunburn because you forgot to put on sunscreen. And so you remember, like, okay, I forgot sunscreen last time on a sunny day. I had blisters. I don't want that to happen again. And so you would learn from that. And sometimes pain and discomfort didn't have an obvious cause. I know people who have suffered from headaches and uh, pains and allergy symptoms, and they're not really sure what they're allergic to. So they go to the doctor and they get some tests done to hopefully manage symptoms. Uh, and sometimes we know the risk. We know we're allergic. We know we're intolerant, but we're willing to roll the dice, take a chance, and say the fun that I'm going to have, the flavor that I'm going to experience is going to be better than the consequence. And so you, you just do it anyway. And sometimes we have to suffer those negative consequences before we recognize, you know, I need to do things differently in the future to make a wise decision. Like I never thought about putting sunscreen on the tops of my feet until I burned them. Once you burn the tops of your feet, you will learn. That is a bad mistake. Do it. Uh, so God, he told Adam, if you eat from the tree in the midst of the garden, you will surely die. This was obviously a strong deterrent, but no one had yet suffered death. 
He hadn't observed it. He hadn't seen it. Perhaps some of the finality and the, the horridness of it was lost on him to a degree. But even the knowledge of something doesn't necessarily keep us from thinking or doing righteously when mixed with the desires of our flesh. Right? When you have that desire within you, there's something that stirs up that desire, and we know it's not right, but we will still do it. But Adam, he brushed aside that divine prohibition, and he ate the fruit. As a consequence, sin came into the world, and death passed to all men. And after being confronted with the sin, what did Adam do? He blamed his wife. He blamed God for giving him his wife. When God asked Eve, what is this you have done? She blamed the serpent. She said she had been deceived. And God didn't entertain reasons why they did what they did. And any attempt to shift blame would not justify them. Though God had the right to destroy them body and soul forever, he extended mercy to them and grace. And he gave them provision of life and hope in his mercy. Let's pick up our text in Genesis chapter 3 verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Sin's consequences were so much greater than Adam could have dreamed Life was permanently altered because of the curse. Satan had spoken through the serpent, and so the serpent and Satan would both suffer as a result. They were both degraded. Some suggest that the serpent was different before the fall. Others say that the natural condition was made to be a curse. Uh, and in common speech today, we say serpent and snake are the same thing. And as we have studied through the book of Job, we know that the Leviathan is called that crooked and piercing serpent. It alluded to Satan, uh, a real creature, but there were allusions there. It's like at times more than, it seems, than a serpent. And we see that in Revelation 12, 9, where the devils referred to the great dragon and the old serpent, going all the way back to the garden where he spoke through the snake to Eve. So in cursing the serpent to slither on his belly, God also cursed Satan. When we see that snake crossing the footpath or sunning on a rock, we're reminded that Satan is cursed by God for all the days of his life, that God would put enmity between the seed of the woman and the serpent. There would be hostility, there would be opposition. That's what that word means. Both in Australia and the US, you know the, the animal that's most feared is the snake. Interesting. Um, that there is hostility between them. It's like, kill that thing because it could kill me. Even the harmless ones, we, we know it's harmless, but we're, we're almost instinctively wanting to stay away from them. In, it's clear that in dressing the serpent, God's doing more than talking to a reptile because he talks about their seed, what would come from them. That he goes beyond the physical and speaks to a spiritual thing. That the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman, they would be opposed to one another like the darkness is to the light. I'm reminded of what Jesus said when he ruffled some feathers of the Pharisees who were very proud sons of Abraham. When he said this in John 8:44, he said, you are of your father the devil 
and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. So they're claiming to be sons of Abraham, but he's saying your works are saying a very different thing. Genetically, you may have descended from Abraham, but spiritually, you're full of lies and deceit, just like your father, the devil. You resemble him. You don't resemble Abraham, who believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. Here's the son of God standing here, and you're calling him a devil and a deceiver of the people. You don't resemble Abraham at all. John contrasted unbelievers and born-again followers of Jesus in 1 John 3.10. He says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So there's these, this evidence in our lives of who we descend from, who we are living like. And we can identify snakes by their markings and the shape of their heads and their behavior. And in a similar way, the children of God, they are identified by their obedience to him, by their love for one another. And we're to take this personally, not to look around and say, where's the real children of God? Where's the children of the devil? But that we would take it to heart ourselves and saying, am I claiming to be a child of God when I'm filled with lies, hatred, deceit? God said, the seed of the woman shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Snakes, they slither along the ground. We're not always cautious of where we're putting our feet and a lot of times snakes bite because they've been stepped on. It's just, they, they actually want to stay away from people for the most part. Um, if you look at the map of Sydney and snakes, there'll, there'll be a big red area over our area. I haven't seen many snakes I know they're there. I know they exist. I think in the 11 years we've been here, we've seen one. It was my, my boys walking home from school, saw a snake, and it was like a big deal. There's a snake. Pretty cool to see a snake, I suppose, as long as it's not striking at you. Um, but Satan, he was like a treacherous snake. He knew what he was doing. He, he crippled mankind by sin, by deceiving by giving that temptation, but Jesus, the son of God, the seed of the woman, the one who would be born of a virgin, he would destroy Satan by crushing his head. So in this curse of Satan, it's a blessing and a promise of hope at the same time that the power of Satan would someday be destroyed. Being a murderer from the beginning, Satan, I believe he delighted to see Adam grow old and die. He conquered someone made in the image of God. And he was drunk with pride and sought to do the same thing with Jesus. But Jesus rose from the dead, proving his power over sin and death. Not only that, but as a righteous sacrifice, his blood blotted out the handwriting of, handwriting of requirements against us. He destroyed the curse of sin. He destroyed death and he rose from the dead. So he demonstrated power. There's reconciliation we can now have with God made possible through what Jesus has done. We read of this in 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
in Jesus, we have hope of forgiveness. We have this assurance of righteousness and salvation by grace. And that hadn't been revealed yet to Adam and Eve, but there was that promise that was uh, alluded to right from the beginning of the fall. Verse 16 of Genesis 3. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. The woman, for her part, would also suffer as a result of sin, that God would multiply her sorrow, that's anxiety and pain and difficulty to conceive and discomfort of pregnancy and bearing children. And compared to other creatures that give birth to live young, the, the pain a woman endures has got to be at the top. Um, and let's not imagine that the pain ends after childbirth because moms continue to deal with sorrows and anxieties and thoughts concerning their kids. And that's as a result of the fall as a result of sin coming into the world. And praise the Lord, there's a remedy uh, and a comfort that we have through faith in Christ. He's borne our sorrows and griefs. Apart from Christ, we are doomed to anxious thoughts and worries and pains. But by the grace of God and as his adopted children, we can find rest in him. When you're diagnosed with a permanent condition by a doctor, it's up to you how you are going to face that. There's likely a negative symptom that led to that diagnosis. You sought a doctor and said, why am I thus? You know, why am I feeling this way? And sometimes there's an action you can take to manage your symptoms. Like you could change your diet. There's, there's uh, reduced intake of certain foods. Uh, you could undergo a procedure. You could rel- take regular medication that helps you live a healthy, productive life. And you can also let a bad diagnosis depress you. You can be angry about it. You can just, I'm going to fight this thing and really grit your teeth, be, or be resigned to it, to just kind of give up and just say, well, I'll just let be what is, and I can't do anything about it, so why should I care? Kind of a carelessness. Or we can do things that work towards a good prognosis. So you had a bad diagnosis, but you could have a good prognosis if you choose to embrace healthier habits. And it would be foolish for us when we read of the curse of sin, to be embittered towards Adam or the woman or the devil. When God's given us a hope of a glorious future with him, when we have a prognosis of eternal life and salvation and healing and hope, that's very real, more real and more powerful than the curse. It's a life free, free of pain and sorrow and worry That's that glorious future that awaits us in the presence of God forever. So you're not helplessly doomed to sorrow and pain because of someone else's sin inherited from long ago because today God is your refuge. God is your help in time of trouble. Amen? He is your hope. There is a hope in Christ. Anxiety, that's a reminder to look to God in faith. Worry, that's a trigger to trust God now. Sorrow, it leads to joy when we remember Jesus' love for us. There's this redemptive aspect that only God brings, and it came as a result of sin. It was like, now there's this need that man never knew he had, and our eyes are open to the glory of God in a new way. God also said the curse of sin would bring additional struggles in the covenant of marriage between a wife and her husband, 
He said, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now the principle of Adam's headship in the marriage was made before sin, but it would be harder for a woman to submit to the man's, uh, I guess God's desire for the home. And we see here when there's a restriction, there's a desire to buck that trend, right? When there's something prohibited, that's the one thing that you're thinking about doing. You wouldn't have maybe thought about it before, but now that it's, now that it's uh, taken off, it's saying, this is wrong. You should not be doing this. You're like, oh, why, why not? What's wrong with that? They ate from the one tree that God said, don't eat from that tree, right? He said, all the trees, you can eat as much as you want all the time from all of them. Just one of them you cannot. And we'll see that the tree of life, they did not eat from that tree. But they ate from the tree that God forbade them to eat from. Hmm. I have a really funny example of this, how, how when there's something restricted from us, it stirs a desire. It, I, I went to the desert years ago, and there was this boy who's about 10 who was just fascinated with those orange safety flags on the back of a four-wheeler. He was playing with the stick, and his dad's like, hey, don't touch that. Leave that alone. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. Like, I didn't even think anything of it. Some discipline being meted out. And as I'm sitting by the fire, Suddenly the dad just jumps to his feet and he runs over and I see the kid and he's, he's pulled the flag out by now and he's just waving it like this. Just, he's like 10 meters away, just in full view, just waving this flag as if he's trying to, I don't know, bring down a like direct aircraft or something. And, and so his dad's like, oh, and I'm like, this is hilarious. So anyway, uh, it's like there was this thing that he wasn't supposed to touch and it became just the thing he needed to have and he needed to wave it around and, and that's how it can be because of sin. That because of sin, there's this desire to control and to rule in a marriage. And so it would be more difficult to surrender to God's design. So God gave Adam the, the responsibility as the head in the marriage, but the responsibility is then for him to step up into that role because a lot of men can back down from that role and just let, the, let their wife handle things when it's really their responsibility to take the lead. And then he's supposed to love his wife and serve his wife. And she is to, as he submits to the Lord, to submit to her husband, to his rule within that marriage. She's called to respect him. He's called to love her and not to be bitter towards her. We read that in the New Testament. And with God, all things are possible, right? And that's, that's a glorious thing. So God's not going into any specifics really within the marriage relationship. That's, we see a lot more of that in the New Testament. But let's move on, verse 17. Then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Finally, God directs uh, judgment to Adam for his sin. He said, because you yielded to your wife rather than obey me, the ground is cursed for your sake. He had been tasked with keeping the garden, right? He was put in the garden to tend it and to keep it. 
God had already planted all these fruitful trees within it already, like it was all done for him, but now life was going to be much more difficult because he would have to plant those trees. He would need to wait for them to grow. He would have to deal with thorns and noxious plants. Think of it, he's, he's tilling and tending the soil and he didn't have a, a mattock or a hoe or a pick or anything, a shovel. He didn't have gloves. Every time he saw thistles spring up, every time his skin was caught and torn by a thorn, it was a reminder, this is because of my sin. I did this. I am responsible for this. Weeds sprung up from the soil he could not eat. They would choke out the good food that his life depended upon. Once I thought someone was doing me a big favor by giving me some dirt. You probably know where this is going. He needed to get rid of soil. I needed soil. It seemed like a perfect match until I had the soil in my yard and boy, it must have been half weeds. I imported so many weeds and I'm like, never again. I'm never doing that. And I just can't tell you how bad it was because of all those weeds. And, and I can tell you, would you believe there was not a single plum tree Apple tree, orange tree, lime, no pineapples, no tomatoes, no, no cucumbers, let, nothing. There was nothing that you could eat from that load of soil. It was just weeds. The cliche goes, live and learn. As Adam tilled the soil in the sweat of his brow to plant grain for his bread, he couldn't return to previous paradise, but wisdom spoke concerning sin never again. Never again. He couldn't turn back time, but he could purpose never to return back to disobedience to God because of what he endured after. Tending Eden, Eden was a breeze, but the curse brought by sin meant by the sweat of his brow. As he's working, the sweat would fall from his face onto the soil. And it's like those salty drops falling to the earth. It foreshadowed that this strong, fit man made in the image of God would die and return to the dust from which he was taken. God said, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Doomed to die. His soul inhabited a body that was moistened with blood, sweat, and tears. And it's compelling to consider that the curse of the serpent was, you shall eat dust all the days of your life, and he would return to the dust. It didn't matter how many snakes Adam stomped in his garden. One day he was going to be serpent food. He was going to be consumed. He was going to waste away. He was going to be gone. Like a fig leaf plucked from the tree, Adam died spiritually when he ate of that fruit and he would also die physically in time. Sin's curse, it was irreversible. He would always labor under the burden of it, always paying for sin, but never paid. Never paid. And knowing that this is the natural state of humanity today, it should provoke in us such a compassion for those who are lost, for those who are dead in sins, who have no hope who have no help, who return to dust. Think about paradise being the only thing you knew, right? Adam was brought into this world, created out of the dust of the ground, breathed 
into a, God breathed a living soul into him, and it must have been a shock beyond words to be cursed by his maker and to live in a cursed world. We, on the other hand, we grew up in a world that was cursed. We grew up uh, with sinful hearts. We're born dead in sin, so sinning for us is as natural as breathing or eating or drinking. I mean, forget nuclear warheads. Sin is the most deadly, damnable, abominable curse in creation, and it's my problem. It's your problem. The risk we have as Christians is we believe that Jesus has paid our fine on Calvary, so sin's not our problem anymore, but that's wrong. As long as we live in these bodies of flesh, we cannot safely sin. It may not damn us to hell, but it cuts us off from fellowship with God. It cuts us off from fellowship with one another. In the body of Christ, it mars our testimony and it robs us of our eternal reward. Sin seduces us away from Christ, away from the love of God and obedience to him. It lulls us to sleep like Samson was on the knees of Delilah who sought to sell him and to see him bound and tormented. We won't go near a python that's harmless, but we can clutch sin to our hearts. It's violating us. It kills without mercy. How wretched is sin and Adam didn't see it. He didn't know what was going to really happen when he ate of that. And what horrors must we suffer before we say, never again. I will never go back to that sin like a dog returning to its vomit. I am done with it. When it's too late, when the deceitfulness of sin hardens our hearts so we don't even shy away from it, for God's sake and for your own sake, Turn from sin today. Repent while there is hope because right now there's hope for you. There's hope for you in Jesus Christ. There's hope for you to be free from the curse in him when we surrender to him. And he prefers the tears of the penitents over the praise of the hypocrites. Now the Old Testament says very little about heaven and hell. If you're looking for a description of it, you really won't find one there. And it's fitting that with the revelation of Jesus and the gospel in the New Testament, we have much more light shed on both. We're still looking, through a, uh, looking at it dimly. But Jesus spoke of a future time when God will divide humanity into two groups. Like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Those who receive Jesus as Savior, those who are born again, and those who do not believe. Those who die in their sins without forgiveness. And to those who receive Christ, he will say, come into the blessed kingdom prepared for you to inherit. Like there's this blessing in eternity that God has for his adopted children. And then he says to those on the other side in Matthew 25, 41, then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. See, that curse is there. They are under the curse of sin, those apart from Christ. And as a result of that curse, those who die in their sins without forgiveness, they will face eternal torment and outer darkness. So if you think that the world is a pretty wretched place as it is because of the curse of sin, the eternal state is far worse. 
It's described as a place where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched, where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. Satan, that deceitful old serpent, and all who followed him and swallowed his lies, they will ultimately be cast into the lake of fire in the final judgment where the Bible says their smoke will rise forever. When God said the soul that sins will surely die, this is what he's talking about. Not just the death of the body, but the eternal death of the soul without mercy. And that's the just judgment sin requires. That's how bad sin is. Genesis 3.20 And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The curse of sin, it's a horrible, awful thing. Yet we see here a glimmer of faith in Adam in the name which he called his wife. God had directed him to name the animals and now he names his wife. And God had spoken of the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. In response, Adam called his wife's name Eve or life, living. That's what that name means, life. He could have called her anything. Like if someone does the wrong thing, we may say that was stupid or that was dumb or that was whatever you want to say. But he said, life. That's her name, life. Humans hadn't conceived yet. They had not born young. But Adam believed God that new life would come from her. The future, it looked troubling and bleak due to sin's curse, but there was hope in God's word being fulfilled that they would have a child, that they would have seed that would go on to destroy the serpent and overcome the curse. Of all the names he could have chosen, he chose something that acknowledged God's promise of life, that there's life in God. It's like he grabbed that hope of life with both hands. And he said, that's what I need. In verse 21, the Lord God made Adam and Eve coverings of animal skin. He clothed them. Their fig leaves are gone. For the first time, a creature died physically, right? They had died spiritually in eating the fruit and disobeying God. But now a creature died, an animal from which the skins were tanned and placed upon them. It's consistent throughout scripture and the law of Moses that the curse of sin brought death. Atonement for sin was made temporarily possible by the sacrifice of a clean animal. That death covered by life. Life is in the blood. So the, the blood of the sacrifice would be covering you, covering that sin so that you could be uh, clean before God. You could be sanctified to serve in the temple. Hebrews 9.22 says, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Remission, it means pardon or forgiveness. The clothing of skins, it illustrated how sin brought death, right? They were wearing the animal's hide that was once living. 
Now it had died and it was covering them. God would not accept them in their fig leaves of their own making. They could not have fellowship with him at all, coming to him their way. But really, they didn't even want to come to him. They were trying to hide from him. And it was he who called them and sought them out. In giving us the freedom to choose, God wants us to willingly choose his way. And if we want to um, draw near to him, the world asserts there are many ways to get to God because there's many opinions about how to do that. And because there's many opinions, there must be many ways. But God says, no, there is only one way to approach him. There's only one way our maker and redeemer says it's the exclusive way to him, and that's through faith in Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can make us righteous. God said that man had become like us, like he, and the, it's evident by the capitalization of the word us that the translators would, they say that this is God um, conversing really with himself. There's no one else that's like God. And so you have God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God, being righteous, he had knowledge of good and evil. It, he knew that it would bring death. Now, Adam, he didn't know that. He hadn't experienced it. There's a way that we can know something in our heads, and there's a way that we know by experience. And so Adam had known now by experience what uh, the difference between right and wrong, what is good and bad, what is sin and what is... Um, obedience and righteousness. Man could not have known evil in paradise. There was no way for him to see it, right? There was no death. In Eden, there was this tree of life that Adam and Eve had not yet eaten of. Maybe they, in their mind, they already had life. Like, why do we need to eat from that tree? We have life. Life is good. There's no need to eat from that tree at all. They just assumed that life was just the way you live. Like, we already have it. But the knowledge of the tree of, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, now that has some allure because we can be like God. That was the lie of Satan. And God was unwilling for man to remain in his cursed condition forever. He's like, I don't want him under the curse living forever. And so we're gonna blockade the way to the tree. And he, by his grace, he drove him out. He sent him out to till the ground from which he was taken. And the chapter concludes, it says, so he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So they're banished from the paradise of God. They are sent out. He was locked out and there were some cherubim stationed there, a kind of angel, not like chubby, childlike, you know, little cherub with little wings flitting around with a little bow and arrow. These were like heavenly special forces, the kind that would adorn the mercy seat of God. In the movies, uh, you always have, like outside these exclusive clubs, it's like the most burly, imposing man who is going to be guarding or the bouncer, right? And these guys are much more intimidating than those bouncers, um, guarding the tree of life. But not only that, not only were these angels super intimidating and uh, you would stay away from them, but there's this flaming sword that's turning every way, guarding the way to the tree. So there was no hope of overcoming the guards or dodging the sword or eating from it. it it's there. You can see it at a distance, but it's unobtainable. 
After the earth was covered with the flood of Noah, the location of Eden is unknown. It was wiped from the face of the earth. And I was thinking that would be quite a tourist attraction, right? Look at the tree of life. And you could see the, the cherubim there and the flaming sword. And I, I would definitely pay to see that. That would be pretty awesome. Uh, but we don't need to know where Eden once stood or where the tree was planted to know that we live in a world under the curse. That we're still living in that same world. The world previous to the flood was destroyed, but we are still under a curse today. How do we know? Well, snakes keep slithering on their bellies. And women still have pain in childbirth. And pe- men still need to work by the sweat of their brow to toil in the field or in the office to scratch out a living. The ground, it's still producing thorns and thistles. And the clearest proof of the curse is that everyone dies. We don't live in these bodies forever. Amazingly, you have death, sweat, thorns, the tree, sorrow, the seed, they all point to Jesus Christ who was sent by God as the savior of the world. Adam was sent out of the garden to till the ground from which he was taken. Jesus was sent by the father to lost sinners who were made in the image of God but are under the curse of sin. Adam's created from dust. Jesus came from heaven. Adam caused death. Jesus brought life. And he would bring life through his death. Jesus came as a righteous sacrifice so we could be washed of our sins, so we could be clothed in his righteousness by faith in him. And he conquered death by his resurrection. We know he gives life and eternal, uh, eternal life and forgiveness to all who believe. Now, it wasn't until the book of, of Exodus that the law of Moses was given that required sacrifices for the sanctification of priests that provided temporary atonement for the sins of the people. Now, the sacrifice of Jesus is far greater because he, he sacrificed once for all, for all people, for all time. And uh, we can read of this. Please turn there in Hebrews 10, verse 14 through 22. As shocking as it was that Adam, to Adam that the curse of sin came into the world, far more awesome and amazing is what Jesus has done in overthrowing that curse that was permanent, that damned us all. Now we have a hope that's eternal. So the curse, it's temporary in a sense because it's been overcome by God. Hebrews 10, 14 through 22. And this is speaking of Jesus. It says, For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. All hope was not lost 
when the tree was guarded by that sword and Adam could not eat of it. It was not lost when that tree was washed away and gone forever. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is that new living way that God has made for sinners to be perfected forever and to be sanctified, to be set apart for him. So we've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus through faith in him, and now we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy of Holies is not behind a curtain somewhere on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, but the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you when we're born again. We're members of his own body where Jesus is the head of the church. It's a beautiful picture that in all creation, there was not one creature that was comparable to Adam. And so God took Eve out of man, right? And in all creation, there was nothing comparable to God. And yet God has received us as his own and adopted us as his own children, made us part of his own body where Jesus is the head of the church, which is so amazing because the curse of sin, it destroyed any hope of redemption, but Jesus overthrew the curse. So we're no longer cursed. We're no longer in bondage to sin, to the devil, or even to our flesh because we have Christ and he has us. We have this assurance of eternal salvation and free of the curse. Hallelujah for what he has done. Sin multiplied sorrow in the world. Jesus was a man of sorrows. I like uh, Matthew Henry. He said, the plaster is as wide as the wound. That's a good thing, right? If you have a big wound, you need a big plaster. If you have a little wound, you only need a little. It's not like the wound is huge and he's like, here's a Band-Aid for that. No, he, he covered everything. He dealt with it all, the whole problem. The wife made subject to the husband. However, Jesus, he subjected himself to the law and to his father. Sin brought a curse. Jesus was made a curse for us, as it says in Galatians 3.13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Man was cursed to work by the sweat of his brow. Jesus sweat, as it were, great drops of blood that fell to the ground in his agony. Because of the curse, it brought forth thorns. Jesus was crowned with thorns on Calvary. Thorns pierce. He was pierced for us. He was wounded for our iniquities. The curse of sin brought death and he died so that we could walk in, his new, in life, in that redemption. So we know his payment was sufficient and that he actually did defeat death because he rose from the dead. And that's how we know that we can have eternal life and forgiveness through faith in Jesus. So, by God's grace, he invites us all to come to him by the way he has provided, by faith in Jesus, clothed with his righteousness. To all under the curse of sin, Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way to life, to forgiveness, redemption, and salvation. Should we go back to sin that Jesus saved us from? No, never again. We are to confess our sins, to repent, to draw near in full assurance of faith in Christ and his purity, his righteousness. And so today we will partake of communion. We take of the bread and the cup to proclaim, to remember and proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. He is alive. He is coming. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And we have come to know God through the Son of God. 
Jesus, whom God has sent, who crushed the serpent's head, who blotted out our transgressions, who gives us life, our Lord Jesus. That's who we remember today, and may we proclaim him with uh, love for him and one another. Could I please invite the worship team forward? They will lead us in a song, and while they are singing, I invite all to come forward and receive the elements, and I'll just lead us in a prayer together. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for giving us life when we were once under the curse. And we still live in a cursed world, but thank you that Jesus rose from the dead, that we have this evidence that has been made clear for all, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And I pray, Lord, if we are wavering on that, if we don't believe that, that you would bring us to a place of surrender to the truth, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we have life through his name. Thank you that we can have eternal life and salvation, that we can be forgiven, that we can have a new start right now because of what you've done. And I pray, Lord, that you would just unmask the lies of Satan and our own pride that would make us think that you haven't done what you've said you have, that you can't do what you say you will do, and that your word may not even be your word. Lord, I pray you would sweep away those lies and that you would bring us to our knees in submission to your truth, in obedience to your word, and in love of God and in the fear of God to walk in the way that pleases you, to give you the honor and glory you deserve as the way, the truth, and the life. And we thank you for Jesus and all that he's accomplished, all that he's doing to work in our hearts and lives and the way that uh, you draw us close to yourself, that the good shepherd goes after even one sheep that is wandering and that we are that sheep. We are that lost one. We are that one down in a ditch somewhere that you set on our feet again that you hold us close to yourself because you love us. And thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. Thank you for your patience and your grace. And I pray that you would uh, be glorified in and through our lives in Jesus' name. Amen.